You know, there are thousands of books published each year, but there are few that really touch you and explode. One is an excellent biography written by Jeffrey Wolfe, who, by the way, is a triple threat man. He's a, an excellent novelist himself and a very perceptive literary critic, too, for New Times magazine. But in addition, has written uh, what some would call a magnificent, one of the best biographies in years, of Harry Crosby, and of him in a moment. It's called Black Sun, where the title itself uh, has implications, being the press put out the publishing house of this man, Harry Crosby. The subtitle, The Brief Transit and Violent Eclipse of Harry Crosby, and the publisher's uh, Random House. But uh, just a, perhaps just a brief sentence would be in order. It's a study of a certain kind of man who's not quite a great artist. He hung around with the great ones, friends of his, and some of whom he subsidized, Paris in the 20s, names that are now part of literature, endurable, endurable literature, endurable. And he also was a, a certain kind of man, and it involves a certain kind of madness. And it's an overwhelming biography, a study of a man and a certain illness, perhaps, and a certain vision, perhaps even more so, black sun. So my guest, Jeffrey Wolf, in a moment after this message. This time, Harry had gone too far. It was one thing to fashion one's life as one pleased and keep one's own gait. It was quite another, it was quite another to trifle and play the fool with the most powerful man in New York to keep J. Pierpont Morgan, Jr. waiting at tea time. It's now going on 5.30. Harry Crosby was 30 minutes late at the Madison Avenue townhouse of his uncle, obliging that great man to make small talk with his sister-in-law, Harry's mother, and to try to put Harry's, Harry's wife at her ease, meantime stealing glances at the library clock. It was December 10, 1929, a busy day in a busy social season, and an exacting time for Morgan, who was mobilizing a banking pool to raise a quarter of a billion dollars to support stock prices after the great crash. And matters of greater moment had claimed to his attention than the capricious rhythms of an outlaw nephew. And thus, a seemingly casual beginning of the end of an explosive life, Harry Crosby. And the reason his uncle, J.P. Morgan, and his wife, Caress, who's part of the story, and his mother are waiting for him, and he's not shown, is because he and his young mistress of society committed suicide, a pact. So who, how'd this all begin? This is, it's like a great mystery, isn't it, in a way? It began, it began for Harry, I think, uh, in, it was in the roots of a conventional Boston childhood where the son of Puritans, descendants of Puritans, they were on very easy, easy terms with death. They almost, uh, they used funerals as social occasions. His mother showed him his grave site when he was a kid. Uh, he, began to th he began to think about his own, own death. He believed in an afterlife from the time he was a teenager. And whenever any, anything deeply disappointed him or anything, anything tested him, one of his first impulses from the time he was very young was to think in terms of, of ending his life on this earth and going on to, it, on to another one. There's something that we can come to, to later, something about youth and age and being man of the moment, whether it be an intense love and thus as many mistresses and amorous successes, plus his it, it being the, if a vision can't be fulfilled, end it, and the and new vision. But before that, let's go, who is Harry Crosby? For a long time, we follow literature in a cursory way, here of Harry Crosby, this rich guy, friend of those marvelous writers, the American expatriates in Paris in the 20s. Well, he, he's, he's always been, for years, he's been a footnote in, uh, in the biographies of other people, biography of, in biographies of Hart Crane and of Hemingway. Um, he was never taken in any way seriously as a, as a literary figure, and, and in fairness, his poems, he's, uh, they don't ever, ever aspire much past the second rate. They're intense, incredibly intense, incredibly sincerely felt. But he, but he was not a great poet. He was a, uh, was a publisher of some vision. He published McLeish and Joyce and Crane. He commissioned the bridge. Um, For those the bridge is that great long poem of Hart Crane. Of Hart Crane, and he had to, he had to really pull that poem out of Crane, who'd given up on it. Uh, he locked Crane up in a, 
in his in his farm outside Paris, in Crosby's farm outside Paris, and left him with a case of Cutty Sark and no shoes. But you said Crosby was always this footnote when we read of the lost generation or the writers, uh, who some of whose works are now classics, but always the footnote. And you, Jeffrey Wolf, then became fascinated by this guy whose name is cropping in and out all the time. Well, I read I read one thing at length about him had been written by had been written by Malcolm Cowley, uh, a beautifully written couple of chapters in Exile's Return that I read in the late fifties, and the story of his suicide seemed to me so bizarre, since he was the only American I'd ever heard of who who, who killed himself without any sense of depression. He wasn't sick. He wasn't poor. He wasn't disappointed. His life, by his own lights, had been a success up to that point, and he killed himself because he believed you should leave the table before you were full, uh, and, he, and, and he killed himself because he believed you should choose your own moment, and I'd never heard a story. Yeah. This is a, this that is a did it. By the way, this was a, quite a scandal. This oh. happened just after the stock market crashed. Just after the stock market. And the scandal is of this Brahmin family, of the top, top, top right. family, as well as the young married woman, his mistress, who was right. also top flight. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, his, his, his mother's family was, uh, uh, was the Gru family. His cousin was an ambassador, and they were all great personages in, in Boston. His father was descended from the Van Rensselaers and so forth. And they were, they were, they were mighty people in Boston. Uh, Harry went to St. Mark's, as his father had, and to Harvard and so forth. And after, after his death, uh, there was silence command in parts of the family. No one ever discussed him again. And indeed, the story of his suicide and his murder of another Boston, of, of another Boston lady who was, a recent who was a recent bride of another great Boston man uh, uh, was completely shut out of, out of all papers except one. Uh, as far as they're concerned, it never happened. And the one paper that did report it as having happened just mentioned it as, as, as an event that took place in New York. No, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but what attracted you about Crosby, aside from his references by Malcolm Cowley and others and, and other writers at the time, and, is that it wasn't out of despair that it was that, but this very rich and remarkably handsome and somewhat gifted publisher, right, you know, right. Right, decided to talk someone else, one of his loves, into suicide and his doing it as though it were a moment of triumph Absolutely. or success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what attracted you. That's what attracted me. The energy in that, uh, the skewed vision, I, 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 uh, obviously it's a very perverse vision, but it was a thing that, 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 that required enormous attention and energy from him and, and of course courage. And uh, I found it an awesome act. It was but really isn't there a reason, and you touch on this throughout, as does Malcolm Cowley, and this is one of the keys, it, something involving art and life, a perverted view of art and life. He always admi he admired, say, Joyce and mm -hmm. the greatness. He's, these works will endure, and in a sense they're immortal. Yes. Now he knew damn well that he didn't have that talent. So he would associate, he loved Baudelaire, Mm. and Wilde and Dorian Gray, that if something that in these works is death, so he confused the poet with the poetry, Absolutely. that in his death, he, that would be a work of art. There's a wonderful story that Archibald MacLeish, who was his friend, told me. He, he translated, one of the things that I was fascinated by is that Crosby enacted every, every vision that he found in, he, that, that attracted him from poetry. And MacLeish told me a story about, uh, about Crosby's obsession with Rambo. And Rambo, of course, wrote a lot of drug, he, he wrote much drug poetry. But it turns out he didn't use drugs very much. He smoked hashish a few times, it made him sick, and he stopped. But that didn't stop his poetry about it, the poetry of vision. Crosby could never understand that. He wanted to write poetry about drugs, and, and so he became a drug abuser. I mean, that was just, he knew no other, there's no other way. Yeah, you have to act it out so that if you, if you're writing poems about demonic visions, then you have to become a demon. That's yeah. that's it's obvious. Yeah, to so him. Kublai Khan to him came about because Coleridge was on, on dope, and he uh, probably wasn't on dope at that time. Probably didn't matter. No. Yeah, yeah. Probably didn't matter. In a way, it's like he sees a great actor doing Iago, and this guy's not a good actor. He's well, I will be this vicious guy in real life. Absolutely. And that'll be my art. Absolutely. 
And that's a kind of craziness yeah. that's, that's extraordinary. It's so brave, for one thing. Uh, completely heedless of consequences. I, uh, Hemingway, who was a, was, was a man Crosby knew, knew not very well, but knew well, and they were friendly to each other, said that, said that Harry had this, great, had this great gift, this great gift of carelessness. And, and beyond that, he found Crosby's courage, the nature of his courage, awe-inspiring to him. Because for Hemingway, what courage was was overcoming fear. But and Crosby never have felt e fear. Except courage, perhaps, but also a madness. Thing. Oh, yes. Because there's all, he's nutty as a fruitcake. Oh, sure. Look at this, he's oh, sure. got to be nutty as a fruitcake. Oh, sure. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. But within, yeah. if it yeah. had just been a chaotic kind of craziness, yeah. I couldn't have written the book. I, I wouldn't have wanted to write yeah. the book. It was that inside the confines of his own system, Everything's logical. Everything. It's interesting because he said chaotic. Because he also uh, he also subsidized to some extent the works of D. H. Lawrence. Yes. And Lawrence said of Crosby's poems that gave him Crosby some car some uh, some uh, faith is that even though he wrapped him, he said what his chaos had life to it. Is that life. it? Life. Here's the chaos yeah. untamed. Yeah. Untamed. The untamed. chaos untamed. Yeah. So here he is. He knows these fine artists, these poets, these writers. And yet he knows he's not part of them. So therefore, he must do something. Aside, by the way, let's stick with the story, because Black Sun, uh, the biography of Harry Crosby, of my guest, Jeffrey Wolfe, is very exciting reading, too. We read, and somehow, there's a sense of the inevitable in this. We open, you tell us about it, and then it's like a detective story. It unravels, and we find out about this guy, and of course, his wife, who's quite remarkable in her way, Caress. A name he gave her. Right, extraordinarily beautiful woman. Um, remarkable to me, in, in in a sense, one of the most remarkable things about her is her own persistent sanity. I mean, she she indulged her husband in his in his in his craziness, and I don't think ever really partook of it. Uh, I've always been I've always been astounded at her courage in one sense. That from the time she first met Harry, he suggested that that he sh that. That uh, that he could shoot her, then himself, and they'd go to and they'd go to this eternal bliss together, and she said, "Well, maybe someday, not right now." Yeah. But she had to either believe him, that he, that she either had to believe he was capable of doing that, in which case she had to be terrified all the time that he chose he yeah. choose the moment, or she didn't believe him, in which case he was a phony. And a despicable character, I mean, despicable character, uh, which is the box in a way that he was in, I think. Yeah. He talked about suicide so much that that he built his own prison. There was no way that he could By not the, you, commit. You point out somewhere here that were he not on the fringe of art, were he not considered a poet, if he talked the way he talked, we'd have put him away. Absolutely. The guys in the white suit would have come for him. But because... We considered him a literary figure. Talk right. literary terms. Right. We didn't realize the guy actually meant it. That he actually meant yeah. it. We're really indulgent of people who, yeah. who, who uh, yeah. I think of people who call themselves artists. Uh, there's one dark side of me. I, 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 I don't want to push this too far, no, but I keep, thinking of, I, I keep thinking of Crosby and Manson in some, in some awful... Con I mean, there is that sense Crosby, one of his... Of his of his poems is this vision of leading a band of sun followers into death that he wants to Was oh, that the assassin? assassin? Yeah, he wants to persuade yeah. them yeah. that they should die. And there's that sense that anything is justified by a vision. And uh, I, I wonder, you know, if Manson had called himself an artist, would we have idiots now running around saying that he was a man I of great... I think you touch on one of the reasons why this biography is so good. I think you just hit it, that there is a Manson quality here in Harry Crosby. But Harry Crosby, very wealthy, upper crust, all kinds of dough. Manson, this institutionalized, orphaned, beaten, battered, both the result being the same in both cases. Yeah. In, in Crosby's case, elegant, because he was elegant, certainly. Very we elegant. can talk about that in a moment and his nature of seduction. But the other guy, also seductive, but from bottom, and this right. guy from top, and yet both meeting in this madness. Right, right. It's that sense. It's the, it's the, 
In Crosby's case, I think it's the fruit of two kinds of things. It's, a, uh, it's, the, it's the dark side of the moon of, of liberty, which just descends into complete license. Everything's possible. Hedonism Nothing, completely. Hedonism completely. And the other one is the sense, again, that art excuses all things, yeah. that, that, that art is the only... Well, you know. One other thing, about that's ego, persuasiveness in both instances, mm. persuasiveness. Uh, Manson's young women and his persuasiveness and Harry Crosby's and his many mistresses. Now, caress was too, too much common sense, his wife to be talked into suicide. But he had other mistresses also who almost but rejected it, Constance, a variety of them. But he finally found the one who said yes to him, but this time his bluff was called. His bluff was called. She said, yes, let's do it. I, I, I've often, do this it. is the, the hardest, do it. I think the hardest thing for me to imagine in all this is that when that moment came, when he said to her as he said to others, let's take our bliss eternally together, we'll pick our moment, we'll die, I'll shoot you, I'll shoot myself. And she, from what I from what I know of her, would calmly have said, "All right, all right, let's do it." Um, whether at that moment he said, "My God, what have I done now?" Here it comes, or whether he ran toward it full tilt, happy, yeah. said, "I've I've succeeded. I finally yeah. succeeded." And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, of course, you've done yeah. some remarkable. This is detective work. You've done research here. Because there were some people who were saying, oh, he murdered this poor young right. girl. She would never have agreed. But you've come across bits of information here and there in libraries and files, a poem or a letter that she, her name was Josephine right. Roach Peabody? No, she was... No, Bigelow. Bigelow. Josephine Roach Bigelow, yeah. right. And uh, you came across a little piece of information and you worked it together. It was an extraordinary discovery for me because... Uh, 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 well, well, I found it in a packing case in a, in a library, actually, actually Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And uh, it was my last trip out there, and it was in a box that had his old uniforms in it. It was inside a cigar box. And here was a poem from Josephine delivered to Harry the day before they died. And the poem declared her eagerness to die with him. In, in our death is our marriage, she said. In our death is our marriage. And... Until that time, I was going to have to, in my book, I, and, and, and I hated to have to try and do this, I was going to try and propound a thesis that, no, Harry wouldn't have just murdered her. That he wasn't the kind of character. But I didn't have any proof of that. I knew it was true, but I couldn't prove it. And when I found that poem, when I knew finally that it was true, uh, it completely liberated me. I, I could organize the book then, uh, I suppose, more novelistically. I could, I could hold things in suspense. I didn't have to try and beat a drum all the time. So it was probably the, it was the most important moment yeah. in this project. But somehow also you've come to a conclusion through a variety of sources that after he had shot her at this little rendezvous they had at the home of a friend where they used to meet mm. to make love before, uh, there were a couple of hours when he was still alive. So the guy, see, it seems to me this is an incredible moment. The guy's bluff was called. Perhaps, who knows, if Harry Crosby would ever have committed suicide, if his bluff were... And he didn't want to commit suicide alone. The challenge was to talk somebody else into it. To talk somebody else into it. He had to do that, because if he did it alone, people could say, oh, that's just crazy Harry. He he just... Or he didn't know what he was doing, or he was drunk, or he was drug-induced. But if he could talk someone else into it, if he could persuade them into it, then his vision would be accepted by somebody else, and they'd have to, and they'd have to accept it. Now, in those two hours when he was alone with her body in that apartment, uh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's those two hours, of course, that'll, that'll always, be, always be a mystery. It's an unassailable mystery. Whether he turned over ways, is there any way I can, I can walk out of here? Of course, there wasn't. There was no way he could walk out of that room. Um, or whether yeah. he just sat there, he used the yeah. two hours to yeah. just savor, savor yeah. what was about But to there again, maybe savor, there again is that Manson touch you were talking about, persuading somebody else yes. that your madness is sanity, or that this madness is a vision. 
Exactly. I mean, and this is what we're talking about, isn't it? That's exactly. what makes the book Beyond Harry. You call the subtitle as the, the uh, Brief Transit and Violent Eclipse of Harry Crosby. Now, I think for the second half of this conversation, we've got to go back to beginnings, to all the influences on him, his life, and that led right. in some inevitable fashion to this ending. Right. We do that. Let's take a slight pause now. My guest is Jeffrey Wolf, and the biography is a one of the most acclaimed ones in a long time, Black Sun. And of this in a moment, too, the title, it was the name of the publishing house that he and Caress had. And the significance of that phrase and the meaning of the sun, too. And right. the brief transit and violent eclipse. Eclipse, of course, sun. Yes. I'm a little stupid when you get to it. Of Harry Crosby and Random House, the publisher. So, un momento. So, resuming the conversation with Jeffrey Wolfe and Black Sun, the biography of Harry Crosby. We got to go back to beginnings now. Very privileged indeed, handsome, almost godlike in appearance, elegant, everything he wanted. And they wanted him, of course, the assumption of his parents and others, we'd go into the brokerage business, nephew of, of uh, J.P. Morgan. Right. But no. He was, uh, I believe, probably the most profound influence on this. On this Saint Mark's boy, he was a, he was a very conventional. By Saint Mark's, that's very 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 fancy, the yeah. fanciest of the fancy. Like beyond Groton, right? Well, yeah. with, yeah. It's the same. Groton and Saint Mark's. Lady. It's 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 fifty 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 with them, and best club at at, at Harvard and so forth. Uh, the thing, probably the most profound influence on his life was the war. Uh, he was an ambulance driver in World War One. Uh, in some of the worst campaigns on the Somme and at, at Verdun of the war. He saw uns unspeakable brutality, of course, together with everyone else who was in the front. He once drove 70 hours consecutively carrying dead and wounded back and forth from the, from the trenches to field hospitals. And on November 22nd... Uh, well, just a parenthetical comment. He was an ambulance driver in one area in France at the same time that Hemingway was in Italy. Hemingway was, Dos Passos yeah. was an ambulance driver, E.E. Mm -hmm. e. Cummings was an ambulance driver, all these people. So he was in an ambulance, his ambulance took a direct hit from a shell, it was, it was utterly vaporized, all the people in the back of the ambulance killed, uh, and Crosby emerged from it unscathed. Um, it's possible to make a case that from that moment on, Harry Crosby thought that he had died and was 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 back ghost-like to visit the earth again. Certainly there are implications of this. But after that war, which he went to directly from school, not from college, but from school, he went back to Harvard. Um, his father felt that he should enter a conventional, a conventional life as a banker, that his behavior should be what a Bostonian's behavior was. And Harry could never live an ordinary life again. Uh, his father had not been to the war, couldn't understand this. And I think in some ways, Harry had a lot in common with, with other people who had experienced the war, that whole post-war spirit of rebellion. But for Harry, it went, I think, a lot further than that. There was a, people always called him frail, they called him nervous, in the sense of, of having bad nerves, just, just extremely jittery. And I think the trauma of the war was so deep, so deep, that, that it unhinged certain things in him in fundamental ways. He didn't begin right then, for example, to aspire to, to become a poet. He'd never, he hadn't ever had any interest in poetry to speak of uh, until much later. He just knew that whatever it was that any older person told him to do, he didn't want to do, he wouldn't do. And his rebellion from the beginning began to take extreme forms. So uh, was it McLeish or someone, or was it Cowley who said, in a sense, that suicide was his second death, that there was a death, in a sense, psychically. That was when Cowley's that ambulance thesis. Yeah, exploded. absolutely. That was Cowley's thesis. I have trouble pushing this too yeah. far. Uh, but you say he was unhinged. You see, he was unhinged. Something got he, loose. Something got loose. Yeah. The odd character of it is that yeah, his war letters were published by his family after he killed himself. And the letters that come immediately after the event are completely unchanged from what had come before. He was still, he was a dutiful boy writing home. Um, he, he thanked heavens for his escape. 
And it wasn't until later that this thing, he, he celebrated that day, for example, for the rest of his life. That day and the day that a friend was killed. There was also the little touch of uh, necrophilia related to mm. it. His interest in this corpse, this this dead friend, Aaron Weld. Absolutely. Now it's over and beyond. This guy's now dead. He's dead. But he was paying. He didn't know him too well, did he? D- hardly, he hardly knew him at all. He was and a friend of his, uh, of an, uh, a you, younger brother. You yeah, he, uh, he, um, he had a had a friend, older brother, was killed in the war, and and I guess Harry had seen a bit of him, but not a lot of him, and became obsessed with his death. Uh, he. He gave a bell at a at a at a chapel in, in in France in his honor. He always took that day. He abstained from drinking and from drugs and everything on the on the death anniversary of this of this older of this older boy. Um, it became it became one of the central events in his life. And I can only guess, but I believe that was probably Harry's only successful metaphor was that he saw in that in that kind of friend's death, his own, that he could really, yeah. he could visualize it. And then the other aspect you touched on earlier that uh, recurs here, where he came from, Boston, that puritanical, Brahmin as it was, doer, even with all that dough, there was more delight, it would seem, perverse delight, in funerals than in christenings. Absolutely. In death than in birth. Absolutely. Absolutely, many people have, have, have taken note of this. I find it astounding. Uh, I found, for example, Boston and its conventions much more exotic than Paris in the 20s and its conventions. I, I didn't know that much about Boston and, and, its, and its doings until I began this project, and I find it just incredible. I find it an, I, an incredible thing that a mother shows her young son the place where he's going to be buried as with it in, a, in a friendly, happy spirit. Here's the tree under which yeah. you're going to lie eternally, kind of thing. Uh, he figures well. They're strange folks. So <laughs> Harry, somehow after that accident, of war, he says, "Well, that place looks pretty comfortable. That's pretty good." And it's also the end of all these damn problems that obsess him. Mostly, I'm not a good poet. <laughs> that could be in it too, you know. That's what I. This this puzzles me. I I don't know. He left extensive diaries that I had access to, and and, and letters. And I've known writers. I've known writers long enough to know what agonies they go through at the success of their fellows sometimes. And Harry Crosby was as free of envy as any writer I've ever encountered. I've never, there, there's not a spiteful, envious word for having to do with the success. He, he always seemed to welcome the success of his friends. Uh, his admire, uh, he admired them without, without reservation. Individual works he could hate, and he'd say so directly, but there's no spider envy. And I just, because of that, there's something about him that strikes me as less of a poet than a fan of poetry. Oh, I, I think, and I think so there's this a difference. Explains, and perhaps we come now to what made him come to the attention of people, to you too, even that footnote, is that he was not only a friend of some of these fine artist, but also their patron, too. Yes, he was. And so, oh, before that, before coming to Paris, a caress, we come to the first scandal of his life. She was married, and she was beautiful, and he's also showing society, but this is also an undercurrent, isn't it? He was going to show Brahmin Boston Absolutely. that he's a rebel, too. Absolutely. Uh, he met this He met this lady who was married to a, uh, to a Peabody, one of the I guess I guess two greatest families in Boston, and he was about to come home from war. This 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 Peabody, I think he was a captain in the in the infantry, and he was about to come home. and And Harry proposed to caress then whose name then was 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 Polly, that she leave her husband and come to him. And she said, "This is impossible. I can't do that." And in that society, divorce is akin to suicide. It was just—it was unheard of. It was an unspeakable thing to do. She was older than Harry by about four or five years. Um, he persisted and persisted and chased her and chased her and chased her, and he finally pers- and he finally did persuade her to leave her husband. And when they were 
when they were talking seriously about getting when they were talking seriously about getting married, this was such an embarrassment to the Crosby family that they agreed to have him quit his job at a bank in Boston and go off to Paris, get out of town. It was uh, uh, it, it was indeed scandalous. It was it was notorious all over Boston what was going on. This is a matter of divorce yeah. after all. That's all. That's all. But then in Paris, by the way, uh, Kay Boyle, who was a friend of Crosby's, uh, felt caress. She knew the way was far the stronger, more interesting of the two. Yes, she did. Uh, I don't agree with her, um, but I believe it was it was Kay Boyle's case that uh, that Caress was was injured and victimized, and that of course is absolutely true. There's no question about that. She's suffered enormously on, as 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 a lot of people suffered because of Harry. Um, she felt that that Caress probably held Harry from death for a long time, that her stability, what stability she was able to offer, held him from death. And I think that's true. I just find her her less complicated than Harry. Yeah, because you were interested in why the, the act and all that led up to it. And so we come to, to Paris. Now, he quits the brokerage there, and and now he... He wants to do something, wants to be the poet. Exactly. He'd been working at his uncle, J.P. Morgan's bank in Paris, and he'd been earning less than he paid his chauffeur. And uh, so one day he decided, and it was pretty sudden, there wasn't much preparation, was he was going to become a poet. So he started asking people sort of how, how, how you become a poet, and uh, everyone pointed out to him that in his 20s it was pretty late to be thinking about it, but that... And that probably that he, that he wasn't able, able to make much of a career unless he were he were a genius. So he said, uh, he said, very well, how do you get to be a genius? <laughs> and the consensus from what he read and what he heard seemed to be that, that, that geniuses were all mad. And part of his program then from poetry, which he wrote, God, I think he published, I've forgotten now exactly how many, I think it was eight or nine books in five years. Um, Became, he became a sun worshiper. He became, uh, I, don't, I don't call him in the book an opium addict, but he certainly used opium every, almost every day of his life yeah. for many, many years. He did. But right. all these, he thought, were the means by which he could uh, woo the muse. He know? wanted to be, like, yeah. exactly, become the poetic persona. He, he worshiping, he has, a, by the way, some of the writing of Jeffrey Wolf is very good here, too. And this is the early days. Uh, about he decided to become a writer, neither kooky nor casual in his decision, or neither cocky nor casual decision, under no illusions as to his gifts. He meant to serve a proper apprenticeship, but right here, here's the part I'm looking for is this. But he became a poet single-mindedly, single-mindedly worshiping both the sources and products of art. And later, I think you have this, he had the three hallmarks of the poet. Were they some sort of religious vision of finally a violent death, but they were free. Right. What were they three? There were three hallmarks, and that, in a sense, led to the, the suicide. Certainly, uh, certainly, vitality yeah. was one of yeah. them. Uh, excess, uh, ecstasy. By the uh, way, he liked Blake, didn't he? He loved Later. Blake. Well, he because loved one Blake. of Blake's yeah. lines, you know, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Right. Well, yeah, this would certainly. Yeah. Die. Yeah. I. I didn't use that. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent yeah. line to describe what Harry believed. That that describes yeah. very well. Yeah, what but Harry Blake wasn't nuts. No, Maybe no. Blake had a little vision. Harry no, no. was nuts. No. And exactly. so the nut goes over the precipice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, so go ahead. There's a wonderful thing, and uh, well, Harry 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 read the Confessions of an Opium Eater when he started when he started using opium, and De Quincey is talking about his first experiences with opium, and he had this wonderful description. He said that uh, uh, if a man uses opium, but his talk when he doesn't use opium is of stables and horses, that the visions that he will have under opium will most likely be of stables and horses, mm -hmm. that the drug has no power you know, to transform you know, anyone. It's so funny. I know a lot of jazz men. You know, right. Through the years before the word, uh, mari before marijuana was called pot and used right. by kids, uh, jazz men did back in the 30s, what tea they called it. And, they're saying, right. and these guys, oh, we thought we played so great. How did you play? Rotten, lousy. Right. We thought we were great. Or guys on booze. Right. You know, they were great. 
And I hear some friends of my good jet when they're boozed up. They were horrible, but they thought it was great. Coming back to this. Well, I'm sir, I'm no stranger to booze, and I and, and I knew when I was writing this book, I'd I'd have. I'd have notions yeah. of grandeur, how I was yeah. going to manage, how I was going to manage parts, and at night they just seemed oh, spectacular yeah. to me. So this is for another aspect. Before we come to Black Sun and uh, the phenomenon of the sun and Harry's mm-hmm. vision and life, uh, religion. He also he became religious. I mean, there was a certain he saw art as religion, but also his whole life. He his whole life, in a way, was a. I think. I. Th- I think it was Ezra Pound said about Harry that his whole life was a, was a religious manifestation, a vote of confidence in the cosmos, he said. And, and Harry associated finally Christianity with his family and with Boston, so he repudiated it completely. And he took up sun worship, but the sun worship he took up was this formless hodgepodge of uh, Aztec rites, Egyptian rites, da-da-da, this and that. Um, he came out of the influence, for example, they opened King Tut's tomb in 1922, which was just when this began to happen for Harry. So he, was, he knew a lot about Egyptology. But it's curious that when whatever system did emerge out of his son worship is a Christian system. He believes in, an af- he believes in a life after death. He believes there's a heaven, there's a hell. Uh, and he never, I think, lost his conviction that he would survive his own death, that he'd be a witness to the aftermath of his own death, which I think a lot of suicides have, but he certainly believed. And as for the son, that became so, of course, he was taken with D.H. Lawrence. Absolutely. And, and uh, Lawrence's works on, I know, uh, what's that, the plumed serpent? Yes, yeah. the plumed serpent. And there and again. Pop- but then he misinterpreted again, didn't he? Abs- Wasn't there a McLeish poem, too, somewhere that he misinterpreted about the, the, about black, the black sun? That's right. He talked, there's a thing, the black circle of the sun, McLeish uses the uses the and 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 what McLeish was talking about evidently is an is an image when you look at the sun you close your eyes and there's a there's a disc mm-hmm. that emerges but for Harry it was demonic he thought it, it you know meant something demonic and it didn't at all that wasn't what McLeish and thus meant. the black sun and thus yeah. he he decided now to be a publisher which would be good uh, also he could publish the works of people he admires right. but also it's the aspect of respectability here too respectability yeah. and access suddenly and access I mean, here's Harry Crosby. Who is he? He's an ex-banker. He's a rich. He's a uh, he's a rich young man in Paris, and suddenly he has the means to pick up the up the up the phone uh, uh, and call James Joyce and say he wants to have a meeting with him, talk about his work. And this became an excellent press. Excellent. I mean, press. excellent publishing. Very press. highly respected yeah. now. Yeah. The greatest the greatest single thing the press did was certainly the Bridge, which is which now fetches the I think copies of that thing are now worth a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, and uh, it was an act not only, it's the one really ground floor act they got in on. I mean, they got, they got Crane before anybody really knew who he was. They were the first publishers also of Kate Boyle, though. That was the first work she had. Also, the works itself were good. The style, the, oh. the, the texture, the pages, everything. He was done with great care and love, wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So it was an excellent Absolutely. Publishing well, they had impeccable taste in all things, but the pages are very clean. Yeah. Uh, very, they're extremely handsome books. Y- you know, uh, I'm looking for those three hallmarks. Here it is of the artist, 187. We're just having this conversation in a, a non-chronological way. It's just the idea of capturing the madness. And the, here it is. Uh, Harry wrote few, a few poems marked by three that were not marked by three preoccupations that the poet is a holy man, mm. a seer, that a meso- metaphysical system governs the poet's days and must be unriddled, and that the poet owes himself a violent life and an early explosive death. There you have it again, that, that, yes. that harbinger of things to come. Yes. He saw that, didn't he? Yes, yes. To coming to uh, so many parts, of, oh, while working the press, the people he met too, Oh, the kind of host he was. We haven't talked about that, have we? Right. This is beyond Fitzgerald's Gatsby. Gatsby was a piker compared to A him. piker, absolutely. Yeah. He, um, they had a farm outside of Paris, a mill that they converted. And uh, on a typical weekend, they might have Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Pickford, uh, the Duke of Windsor, uh, uh, Parisian layabouts, painters, 
One of Harry's closest friends and a, was a was a was a gunman from New York, a guy who'd who'd run in the gangs in New York, uh, a guy named Goops Pullman, and this and and this mess of people, this incredible mixture of people, um, carrying on, I suppose, what in today's terms would be called orgies, uh, but certainly uh, an attempt, an imaginative attempt to make. Out of out of life, out of the out of the terms of living, some kind of a poem, yeah. a statement of something. So kind. He th- yeah. and there again, his life uh, frustrated because so much came easy, and yet the art came so hard. Of that, a work of art, but the great work of art would be the denouement. Absolutely, and that would be. Here it is again. You have it. Uh, madness. Here's that phrase. We look by the. You, you hit in some very marvelous phrases here. Where is that? Madness. This is from Jeffrey Wolf's book in one of the pages here on, on a Black Sun, the biography of Harry Crosby. Madness is the state the poet longs to attain. This is Crosby's thoughts. And in his bizarre imagery, he seems to be only a stop or two from the end of the line. Necrophile, which the speaker kills before he kisses his lover, is characteristic of the volume's preoccupations. This is one of his works, wasn't it? Yes. It is also prophetic, rather creates the kind of prophecy Harry bound himself willingly to fulfill. That's right. That's it. That's right. That's that prison notion again. That, 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 that often enough repeated his intentions uh, had to be honored. Uh, I try to imagine, uh, not so much in the book, but I've I've tried to imagine outside the book what it would be like if Harry Crosby were alive now. Most of his friends are in his seventies, late seventies. what would his life have meant? I mean, it, 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 uh, I don't wish anybody dead, but what, yeah. <laughs> what, what would his life have meant? Harry Crosby, a friend, more than casual, of these writers, at the same time, 78 years old, see Cowley, after all, is a great critic and discoverer, right. uh, others who may be alive, Kay Boyle, in her own way, uh, had a full life, and yet she's respected and honored, Others have dead, but it is his death that's talked about. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, his death is the only thing that makes his talk of death serious. Yeah. <laughs> and since that was his was the his central his central image for himself throughout his life was his talk of his impending death and so forth. If he hadn't been serious about it. What 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 would it have all yeah. meant? Uh, so you mentioned you, you you mentioned Icarus here a couple of times. The, yeah. the image of Icarus. So the fact is, Crosby's wings were waxen. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And he did fly too he near the sun. He did see. fly too near the sun. Yeah, he did fly too near the sun. He um, he he brushes up against that image himself in his own work. But I think it was so close to the center of him that he. That he never really faced that. He had one. The images that he collected usually were the 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 outside edgy sort of images from Rambo and Baudelaire, not about the moment of death yeah. itself, but all the preparations for it. Yeah, and it's very funny. You speak somewhere along the line. It's crazy. Little insights come in, like he met Cartier Bresson, the yes. great photographer. And Bresson, we know, is magnificent. Brasson, Brasson speaks of the decisive moment. The decisive moment. The decisive moment for life. That's right. Where Sir Crosby, right. decisive moment for death. That's right. That's right. That's right. This, t- you see, this is my, yeah. the persistence of his confusion yeah. of those things is, uh, is And he also f- can be flying. We, I said earlier, it flew, t- flew too close to the moon, uh, to the sun. Yes. You, you said flight also. Absolutely. He was a wild aviator too, Absolutely. wasn't he? Yes. And it's interesting, the one, probably the greatest ambition in his life, more than to write a great poem or anything, was to fly alone. And, he, mm-hmm. and at one time he was going to kill himself that way. He was going to fly and, and uh, he was going to jump from his airplane. And he killed himself, um, he killed himself 29 days after his first solo flight. Uh, the most impressive moment and the best writing he ever did was his description of the landing of Lindbergh. After the transatlantic flight, and the and the most beautiful writing he did about that at that was the was the description of the crowd tearing tearing Lindbergh's, it was it was the plane to pieces, yeah. uh, and that, 
I think, I think that brutality, the, the destruction yeah. of the hero, not the... Not the Isn't not that the interesting? Uh, this is what a coincidence. You know, Bill Shira, mm-hmm. the journalist, has yes. just written the first of his memoirs, first one, right. and one is a young journalist at the airfield in Paris, Lindbergh landed. Now, Shira described it as a young journalist did. You know, right. the excitement and everything. But I haven't read Crosby's description. His is from a perverse point Absolutely. of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. For example, the buzzing, there are other planes up there circling around when you come in, and he talks about the French. They're all waiting for it. And instead of Crosby treating those planes that are up there as, a wel- as, as, as though they're there to welcome, uh, it puts him in mind of a bombing ray. Yeah. He says, you know, they, and yeah, the searchlights funny. are trying to pick the, the planes out of the sky to identify them. Instead, they're, they're hostile. Everything yeah, even, is... Even, Jeffrey, you and I are talking, I think, uh, you know, these thoughts come to mind. It's like dramatic thoughts. Two books recently come out, uh, a solid biography, uh, a, a memoir, Shira's Memory. Now, he and Crosby may have been at that airfield that same day. Yes. The two guys, you see, of a certain memorable event in the history of aviation, history yes. of mankind. Lindbergh, the young, the eagle, the Spirit right. of St. Louis, landing in the field. There's a young journalist. It's almost like a stoppered thing. Yes. I'll come to this in a minute. You remind me, your approach. There's young journalist and this young madman, you know, and two different views, and yet both are remembered. Now, what you've done, you, see, you said Harry Crosby was a footnote in your... Uh, uh, and, and you want to enter that footnote? Well, Tom Stoppard in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Right. You see, he had two guys with footnote figures in Hamlet. Right. And he and so he extended that, or he took the guy in a play travesty, some just ordinary. Right. And since you've done that too in your way, you see, which I right. find rather fascinating. I would guess that for Stoppard, as for me, that that crept up on him. Mm. I mean, this wasn't a thing. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't read about yeah. Crosby and say, "Oh boy, yeah. oh boy, here's somebody." It, he just kept hanging around. He just kept hanging. You know, I couldn't shake the, I couldn't shake the notion of him. And I bet, I bet it was like that for Stop. Yeah, but there are a few other things about the Crosby story that you've got that uh, hang hang into me. And one is uh, most die young, three oh nine. Maybe earlier you said, what if he had lived now? Would he have been remembered? Maybe he in himself subconsciously knew that too. That this happens among some people among perhaps less now with the gay revolution, among aging homosexuals, the terrible right. tragedy, the fear of losing looks, the fear, and so in Harry's case, he was still handsome and young, oh, that was a minor thing in his life, uh, but he was still to be remembered, but if he grew older oh. and never achieved, that might be oh. an aspect. Oh, I'm not so sure it was a minor thing in his life, yeah. I think that's you I, think I think very, there? oh no, yeah. absolutely there. The power to attract, I mean, the, he was such a seducer. Oh, by the way, that's yeah. an amazing aspect in your biography. Unbelievable. What, he would just go up to, say, a beautiful young woman sitting with her husband, but he did it with such casualness and... And, and sincerity. sincerity. He'd say... She'd walk off with she'd him. She'd walk off. And if she didn't walk off, occasionally she'd, she'd, she'd hand him a card. Yeah. Or he'd leave his card yeah. and she'd call him. And people were astounded by this. He'd be at dinner with, with his wife. And, and, and another couple, and he'd just look across the room. He wouldn't say, I beg your pardon, or anything. He'd stand up, he'd walk across the room, and he'd walk out with, with a stranger. Now, what exactly was said, uh, who knows, but whatever it was, it, uh, it couldn't have been salacious, uh, cute. This isn't opposite. college stuff. It was, it was this isn't pickups. It's the opposite. There was something so intense and sincere and direct. Oh, I think somewhere you point this out, that at that moment, he actually was in love he met with it. her. Or at that moment, it was an intense, fiery passion. That, at that very moment. I, so he was the man of the moment. I believe that he was capable of, of, he was capable of deep physical and spiritual love for as many as four or five women at the same time. And moreover, there's every evidence that the women themselves believed it, knowing that there were others that they were only one, one part of his life. But he was certainly the woman he loved most in his, in his life was, was, was his wife, despite all his mistresses. He, she was always his favorite woman. And she knew that. Yeah. But there was one woman, though, who agreed to the ultimate. You yes. see, loved them all, but the one, and that's young Josephine Rutch Bigelow. That's right. And the one who, with whom he died. He killed her and then himself. She said yes to the ultimate. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes. And then, so there's the persuasive power. At the same time, this thing we don't know about the imponderable, hey, I never thought you'd say yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, in a sense, it has the character of a train wreck. I mean, it's like these two people approaching each other. Uh, I, I, of course, made nothing like the same kind of depth of exploration of her own life. I didn't have access to it. But she was obviously a very, very, very bizarre, very, very bizarre woman. Very, she was very too. driven, you know. And by the way, there are two. Uh, the image, the public image of this young woman was this young matron, cool, detached, indeed virginal. Absolutely. This is also part of it. Absolutely. We deal with, we deal with reality and illusion here, too, Absolutely. through that. One last thing before the hour goes, and we're talking to Jeffrey Wolfe, and it's quite a remarkable biography, Black Sun is someone points out that he seemed detached too. Someone points out here that he was remote so as not to be hurt, sometimes remote so as not to be too vulnerable. So we have the opposite now, the passion at the same time a detachment. There is about him from time to time a character that's almost like statuary, a kind of abstract, abstract quality. Uh, I believe this is what Hemingway found peculiar in his courage, for example, was its abstract nature, that there wasn't anything personal about it. Uh, it's a very, it's, um, I, after I became so intimate with him in this book, so intimately, I'm still at a distance from him. Yeah. Still at a distance. But suppose you read the last uh, two sentences or so, the end of the book before the postscript, on page 312, because in itself it's someone who, uh, it chose choose your weapons, the gag we say, choose your poison, and he it, chose his weapons. You know. It and can be said that Harry was at his most healthy, at his least morbid, when he studied his forthcoming death. It's death, the hand that opens the door to our cage, the home we instinctively fly to. He wrote this. He seized for himself a great adventure, he created him for himself a cosmos, and abandoned it in his own good time. That's it. And so we have a study, and a very exciting one too, of a certain man, a certain time, a certain madness, and, it, and all sorts of implications, as well as being a very exciting book, Black Sun, The Brief Transit and Violent Eclipse of Harry Crosby, and my guest is Jeffrey Wolfe, and it's Random House, and it's quite available. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for asking me your stuff. I appreciate it.